Hello and welcome to the Canadian Wargamer Podcast. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex and counter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode seven of the podcast. I'm Mike, I'm one half of the team, and if you're a first-time listener, James and I are very grateful that you've joined us. If you're a returning listener and you've put up with our natter and nonsense this far and still want more, well, we are super grateful. Either way, if you like what you hear, we'd be thankful if you could leave a comment and a rating on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pod fodder. You know the drill. In episode 7, James and I have a great chat with Alex, who produces a beautiful line of modern Canadian Army miniatures suitable for Afghanistan. They look like they just uh, um, came back from a stroll in Panjway. They're lovely figures. We also talked about some projects that Alex would like to do next that, frankly, had our mouths watering. After the interview, something a little different for the Canadian Content Corner, where we've assembled a blue ribbon panel of gamers and historians and then James and me as well, to discuss the new Dutch film, The Forgotten Battle, which got all of us quite excited here in Kanakistan because it portrays the Battle of the Scheldt. Well, maybe portrays is too strong a word for it. So we hope you'll enjoy episode seven of the Canadian Wargamer podcast. Hey folks, we're so happy tonight to welcome to the Canadian Wargamer podcast another Canadian Wargames manufacturer, Alex McCutcheon. Alex, how are you? Doing well, guys. Thanks very much for having me. Hi, Alex. James, good to see you again. Yeah. It's been a while. I mean, we think we, we first met, what was it, a broadsword? Could be. Could be, or even even uh, hot lead way back. We're, we're playing a, we're playing a um, oh, was it Force on Force? Or, no, it was, I think it was Force on Force, or maybe Ambush Alley. Could be. Could be. That sounds like something I'd play. Yeah, yeah, we're we're like we're special forces being swarmed by. by Oh, you know, it was kegs. Taliban. It was a kegs con. It was kegs con in the Legion. Yeah. Okay. That's my friend Anthony put on the game. It was uh, uh, whatever it was was really fast and really deadly. Or maybe it was Fubar. It was. You're right. It was Fubar. Yeah, because we're our table chatter got me got me into a whole new major project because <laughs> you had said oh elheim has canadians for afghanistan and it's like yeah and next thing i know i've got a mechanized platoon with tanks and <laughs> oh, i like the thing it is contributing to the community you know there right? you go yeah if someone's going to make canadian modern canadian figures like duty bound to buy them absolutely you know 
course, he expanded the range after I finished my platoon with you know American <laughs> Rangers. It's always the way. Yeah, yeah. So that that segues into um, well, enough about me. What about you? Yeah, tell us about yourself. We we want to obviously hear the whole full battle rally story, Alex. But tell us about your uh, yourself, your wargaming history. What makes you tick as a wargamer? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think like most people, um, you know, certainly most of my circle of friends, I got into to wargaming via Games Workshop. You know, discovered it at a comic book store. Thought, oh boy, this is cool. Um, you know, my, my dad and I had built models as, as, you know, a kid growing up and I was sort of more attracted by the, um, I guess the, the 172 scale Esky figures as opposed to the building the, you know, the Spitfire or the tank. Um, so I'd, I'd been painting those and had no idea what Wargaming was till I think he found some space Marines at, at, uh, oh goodness. It was a store on alternate gravity is where I got my start. Um, so if you're a Toronto crowd, you might remember them. Uh, oh yeah, I remember that store. Yeah. Right by right by uh, Chum, right by the Chum Studios on Queen. Yes, uh, I remember. Oh yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. of good times there. So I, I, you know, all through high school, I guess middle school, high school, played Warhammer. Um, that was my that was my genesis in the hobby. And then you know, university girls partying, drinking, everything else, schoolwork. I, I sort of stopped wargaming. Um, yeah. then in, in mid two thousands, I joined the Canadian forces reserve and somehow it, uh, I joined the Royal regiment of Canada and mm -hmm. somewhere in there, I discovered modern war gaming was a thing. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the pilot light flicks on again and, uh, I'm going, okay, this is kind of cool. Um, what, what can I do here? How does this sort of represent what i'm now learning and doing uh and and right back in off the deep end and i've been drowning ever since um <laughs> but i think like mo modern war game is what modern war game would be like my my second marriage with war gaming and, and definitely the happy one for me um it's it's my favorite favorite subject um so 40k is the crazy ex-girlfriend yeah, but I still see her every now and then. You know, it's it's it's, it's a bit of a toxic relationship. So, is your crazy W forty k ex girlfriend is she uh, is she a sister of Repentia or is she something else? Uh, funny enough, I, I've got some sisters on the painting table. Um, but it, it you know for me as well, and and I think James and I have probably had this debate in the past i'm very much a small scale skirmish game i like every single guy to count you know i don't want to be moving platoons around the table that's that's the that's where my my gaming interest lies um so i i even with the games workshop stuff i i now maybe in my old age and maturity migrate to sort of that small model count skirmish game um and that's very much where my my modern gaming right as falls i'm a big fan of specter and, and the skirmish sangin series yeah so if you have so, more than a section that's getting big for yeah, you yeah it's a lot for me to keep track of um you know what, how many how many soldier fuel bars is each guy eating yeah i, I want to know does he still have a you know a meal tab or is he <laughs> who's got a rock in their boot you know that's that's the kind of bookkeeping <laughs> i like to do that's intense yeah so alex when you say modern are we are, are you talking like post 2000 or uh, no, I think, um, I, I, I can derive the same kind of fun and enjoyment from, a you know, a world war two combat patrol right. type scenario up through, um, you know, now, um, yeah. but, but Afghanistan has really been my 
favorite theater to, to delve in. I've got the, you know, the most complete table and painted forces and all of that stuff mm-hmm. for that. Right. And, and right. that of course also helps support my business. So, yeah. 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 I, I was just asking because it seems to me that there's, there's been this crazy resurgence in the last few years of, um, like 1980s Cold War gaming. We've talked yeah. a little bit about that on previous issues, but that almost seems nostalgic. I almost wouldn't even call that modern now, right? Like that's, it's uh, like modern war gaming. I think if you're thinking like, uh, you know, the Iraq, Iraq or Afghanistan or, you know, uh, Israel versus the Palestinians post 2000, that's still kind of niche to me, but. Yeah, you know, I probably, I don't know. And, and, you know, I've had this discussion before and, and maybe Vietnam would be yeah. the start of it for me. I, I think, and I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why I don't think I can come up with a very solid argument about that's why I drew my line in the sand there, but it sort of feels, you know, everybody's got a much higher level of firepower and there's mobility and there's body armor and there's all these things that change the way a squad level fight happens. Right. And right. that's, that's, I think that's probably where I'd sort of stop what I call modern and, and somebody out there will probably argue that with me till we're in a grave. But, but I think if I think of, you know, if I say I'm a modern war gamer, I'll start at Vietnam and end well next year or whatever, <laughs> whatever comes next, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Korea is, still kind of world war ii because a lot of the guys are yeah. carrying bolt action rifles yeah exactly yeah. and and i think we're talking about larger longer range and game. i mean i know as a rule that's not the case but but yeah. you know we're talking generally in broad strokes about larger and 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 larger scale and larger range conflicts right. yeah and the, and, the, and the american um army and marines were starting to they were starting to move into the what you know the modern section yeah you know, subdivided into one, two or three fire teams, each with an exactly. automatic weapon, and then, yeah, yeah, that that, that makes sense because I was thinking, wow, well, you know, Vietnam's pretty historical for. Well, I mean, it is. Like, God, it's it, like fifty it's, years ago now. Yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah, we were talking uh, in the last podcast about um, Vietnam uh, and Charlie Company as like I think that's the game that probably most players who've touched Vietnam would. Great game. Absolutely. Barrel of fun. I love it. Um, See, and and here we go. There's always an exception to every one of my rules and my statements. Like I think (laughs) Vietnam, I love playing something like Charlie Company where you've got, you know, these large maneuver elements out and and all of that happening. It's fun. Yeah. Well, especially if you, uh, you know, if you've got a really good game master, right? Exactly. Running the opposition. Yeah. Like um, our friend uh, Rick Brayton, when he runs his Charlie Company game, it's always the guy who, who knows nothing is made the American force commander. <laughs> yeah. You know. I'm going to, I'm going to drag up my analogy from the last podcast about how Vietnam is really just the call of Cthulhu role-playing in the jungle. Cause it's the same idea, right? You have all these scared players waiting for the gribblies to jump out and attack them. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. Seems right. So, yeah. Alex, tell us the story of, of uh, full battle rattle and sure. how you, how, uh, where it came from? Was it based on your own military experience, or not? Not directly. Um, I didn't deploy to Afghanistan, um, although it was the conflict of my my time of service. Uh, I have friends, yeah. uh, lots of friends have you know been more than once. Um, yeah, same here. But, but as, as as sort of that was going on, and I'm getting into gaming, and 28 millimeters always been my favorite scale because I'm, I'm very much attracted to the, the hobby side of it as well as the gaming. 
so that I'm a painter um, as well. And I just, I got so frustrated that I couldn't game the Canadian experience in Afghanistan. And it got to the point, I think I had a, I I work in sales for a living. Um, So I think I had a really good commissions check one month and I I thought, you know what, (laughs) if I can get half my money back on this thing and make it happen, I'm just going to do it. Um, So I, I, tracked down a sculptor, um, did my research and, and, and it's one of those things that was very helpful because the, you know, some of the Canadian gear has a very unique shape and style to it. And luckily I had it in my closet, you know, and, and, and had access to these things. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the helmet shape is sort of a very distinctive Canadian feature. Uh, and, and it, it's one of the things that often is one of the compliments I get from customers about sort of that, that, and even from five feet away on a tabletop, for some reason, you know, that's a Canadian helmet. Uh, even if you can't see the rest of the details. It's just very unique shape. Um, so I managed to find a sculptor, paid him a lot of money <laughs> and, and got the range started. And it did better than I could have possibly imagined. Oh, good. And, and not just in Canada, which was the, you know, very exciting for me. Um, mind you, you know, I'm, I'm not buying a car on the salary from i'm not collecting a salary on this project might be uh, i'll rewind that but i noticed you said earlier you were st- you're still work you work for a living i still work for a living full yeah. time um so it, it it's a passion project for me that managed to at least self-fulfill yeah Excellent. maybe would be the, the best way to describe um the success of it uh but that led to growth and i went from a a, a four code catalog to an eight code catalog and then um for better or worse i thought you know what no one makes a lav why don't why don't i why don't i make a, a lav three and uh in fact a, a member of the community was very kind enough to share a, a 3d file of a lav he he built uh for me to sort of begin my production with and i uh, lined up with with the Trenchworks guys in the U.S. because they just do absolutely phenomenally good quality stuff and and quality is is something that's been very important to me from the beginning um, mm-hmm. and sort of figured out what this whole thing was going to cost and I thought making miniatures was expensive making a twenty eight millimeter resin vehicle is even more expensive um, mm-hmm. and sort of set up. A pre-order scheme that was kind of like a, a, a fake crowdfund in a way, you know, it's just sort of like, look, guys, if you want one, you got to give me some money because if I don't get enough people giving me money, this this ain't happening. Right. Uh, and and we we hit we hit sort of by the skin of our teeth the number and and did a full production run and went back for more, which was really surprising. Um, will that happen again? I'm not sure. Um, th- there's not that much demand for a Lab Three out there, uh, but. It's been phenomenal. It's been a really fun experience. And and I think it's been really good for getting to know people, you know, in, in the States and, and in Canada and going to events and, and sort of getting the brand and, and Canadian gaming out there has been kind of exciting. Um, and, and the reception both in the US and, and in the UK and, and in Europe has been just phenomenal um, and, and so caught me by surprise. I didn't think there'd be that much interest outside of our borders, but, yeah. but there was. Oh, very good. Very good. Yeah, I know. Like I've, I, I haven't actually been able to see 
I haven't even seen any pictures of your lab. I followed the, you know, your launch of it. Yep. With great excitement, you know, even though it's not my scale. Um, and I know Dan, I'm pretty sure Dan Hutter bought one. Has he shown it to me? No. Have you put any pictures of yours up? No. <laughs> I haven't. I, I'm just all agog to see this thing. We'll fix that. We'll fix that tomorrow. Um, okay. I, yeah. I only have one copy of my own and it's sort of the display copy. Like I, right. I have, I have one more, I think squirreled away uh, that, that eventually is going to grace my table. Uh, but, but it, I needed to sell them. That was, that was yeah. sort of the catch I, at, you know, at the cost per unit doing a, such a small production run, you're, you're not, there's not a lot of margin in these products is, is one of the big challenging things as a, as you know, a producer or a vendor or whatever it may be. Uh, so when I sort of got struck with the, do I sell this last one or is it my copy? I didn't think <laughs> twice, you know, it, it's, uh, so, so the, the lab will be out. It'll get out there. I know I recognize some names and, and, you know, I'll, I'll respect my customer's privacy, but, uh, there's lots of names we all know that own some, so they'll, oh, I'm good. sure. Good. I'm sure we'll see them as soon as we're allowed to to go out with a out without a bio suit. Have, yeah. yeah, have you thought about like maybe doing a Kickstarter for a second print run? The thoughts occurred to me, but you know, due to some differences in opinion, I'll say um, the Canadian range is relatively stopped for now. Um, I, I'm in a, a challenge with a sculptor replacing a sculptor and i think mid-range it's a very difficult decision to make on you know can these last few packs that i feel like would flesh it out enough mm -hmm. will they fit with the other ones and will it sort of be i'm very happy with where it is now and i don't think it's missing anything critical uh but i think it's time for new projects frankly so yeah that leads us to our next question what is next for full battle rattle it's a good question and, and timely. Um, we I was having a discussion today with with uh, with with some peers of mine, and <sighs> it's going to be a Canadian subject. Um, but what what that is 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 a few is a few choices. Um, but I'm very much leaning towards Canadians for Italy, Sicily, and Italy. Ooh, ooh, ooh! <laughs> and that that's the kind of reaction I like to hear. Ooh. Um, yeah, because they're not just a army because no, they're, they're not wearing the shorts. Yeah, they could be. You know? They could be. They could be yeah. in Sicily. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, there's some logistics I've explored, and 3D printing has made some stuff a lot more possible. Yeah, um, right. you know, maybe they could have the option of shorts or trousers. And would that be in 28 mil, Alex? Yes, most likely. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's that would be a brilliant niche to. Uh, to, to, to jump into for sure. Um, I just finished a, a 15 mil Battlefront mid-war British uh, company kit that I painted up as Canadians uh, and they're all wearing trousers and shirt sleeves. So you can paint them up in the khaki drill rather than the traditional battle dress. And right. they, they, look, um, they look fine. I mean, yeah, there's a dude playing bagpipes and another guy with a stick, like a walking stick, but yeah, which I suppose could be Strom Galloway, but ah, the pipes, the pipes could have been. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I I forswore doing modern or doing World War II in twenty eight mm, but that might tempt me back into it for sure. There's some, there's some cool unique things because they wouldn't have Sten guns; they'd have Thompsons. That's right. Yeah, um, and that would immediately peg them as a Canadian, not a Brit. Yeah. Oh, the Brits and... had the Sten in Italy. Uh, 
It's a good question. I know we didn't because we were sharing American supply and they wanted 45. Hmm. Okay. Um, so maybe we can fact check that one. But I know the Canadians use Thompsons in Italy. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And now the question is, are we doing sort of an Operation Husky or is it the Battle of Ortona? Right. Where do we oh. where up the islands or the boots are we? Are we winter or summer? Yeah, uh, that's, and, that's an interesting question. Because there's they're 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 different enough. Yeah. But they're the same ish. You know, if yeah. a guy was wearing trousers in Sicily, he'd look pretty close to a guy wearing long yeah. sleeves and pants in Ortona. Yeah. Because yeah. it was I mean, we're talking December, but it wasn't parka cold. Um yeah. But it was blood you've control. That, yeah, you've got that picture of the um, uh, the chap from the is it from the Loyalettes in mm. Sicily, and he's got you know the the he's got a towel hanging down the back of his helmet, and you know he looks like he could be at El Alamein, really. Except the yeah, and he's got I think he's got a pretty toothy grin, if I remember the same yeah. same picture. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. shaved for a week, and things like that are why Sicily's maybe a touch more interesting for me because you have guys you know with rolled up things and maybe the odd gentleman in trousers and then shorts and you know mm. rolled up sleeves versus a short sleeve tunic he got his hands on or whatever it may be i think there's a little more variety yeah which always appeals to me as as sort of a, a almost a hobbyist first or a painter first and a gamer second yeah um i'm i'm always sort of going okay what details can go into this and it yeah and it separates them from just you know they're they're World War Two British, yeah. yeah. With the red patch, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're they're both very attractive, Alex. I mean, my my hope is eventually you do both. Uh, I'd love to, uh, especially uh, the the being a being XRCR. I'd love to see Ortona, but that's uh, but I mean Sicily. There's so it's so such a colorful uh, campaign, right? And it's the right, Canadian yeah. Army just kind of finding its way in exactly. that war. Yeah, it's very very interesting time. Um, but you know, the other tempting one is is Northern Holland, the Shelf campaigns. Oh well, because that's you know some leather jerkins and ad hoc cold weather gear and kind of fun too. So yeah, I, I'm just I've got a lot of choices just in in sort of the non traditional World War II campaigns as it is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cut down rubber boots and long handled shovels. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so Canadian mounted rifles for South Africa is like really far back in, in what you do. Uh, to be to be fair, James, if if cost and I know you run a store in this business, so you understand yes. <laughs> the uh yeah. the, the, the business aspect of it. Um I mean, there's so many gaps across the last 200 years of, of you know, call it Canadian and wargaming history mm -hmm. that would be so much fun to game that aren't represented. I, I mean, um, oh, goodness, I'm blanking. Um, Keith runs that amazing Fenian Raid game. You know, he's done it yeah. more than once. And they kind of look like Queen's Own Rifles. He paints them lovely as Queen's Own Rifles, but imagine if they were Queen's Own Rifles, you know, and that's exactly. that's sort of that's the, the that's the little bit that makes me sort of itch, right? It's like what 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 gaps are there? The you know, Boer War would be cool. Why couldn't there be two ranges for the Northwest Rebellion? People might want to play that, you know. Why oh yeah, yeah, be represented. Yeah. Um, that hasn't been touched since Raffin did it in the 1980s. Right, right. Yeah, and those figures are showing their age. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's and maybe and you know this may may come up in our discussion later. Um, 
but I think some of it's also the challenge of being gamers in the Canadian gaming scene, right? Like our, our scene isn't that big, even coast to coast. No. Yeah. That's so the whole, it, whole rationale it, for this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. How many people are going to play Northwest Rebellion when you invest in, you know, however many pro like, I mean, I think I look to, um, even like a, some of the smaller, uh, uh, like Indian mutiny or, or um, retreat from Kabul range that I think Empress has been pumping out lately. Yeah, you'll need a fair number of Canadian infantry codes because there's different units with different uniforms, and you need you know skirmishing poses and marching poses, and it becomes yeah. quite a range to do it properly uh, in in any scale, really. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think maybe the saving grace for the Real Rebellion, the Northwest Rebellion, would be. Um, that it would it would really lend itself to skirmish gaming, right? I mean, yes. I mean, gosh, Batash all in on both sides. What was it? Maybe two, three thousand men in action on one day. Sounds right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, I mean, Duck Lake was what? You know, maybe a hundred guys a side. There's yeah. you, you, there's not many at Duck Lake. Oh well, it was like awesome. six mounties in a sleigh. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, one one so, moose one moose born infantry unit and yeah exactly so you know I I think that would lend itself really well to sort of um, well, Duck, Duck Lake's cool because it's 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 um, I guess they weren't the RCMP at the time but uh, what did they call them the Northwest Northwest, Northwest Mounted Police yeah um, which is again there's kind of cool because you've got these sort of militia style units that would make for fun models yeah um, yep. and it's great Canadian history and it would appeal to those that like Victorian stuff in general right is the Oh, you'd say most of the Victorian science fiction guys. Exactly. And it, it sort of might scream a little sharp yeah. practice to me. Oh, yeah. yeah. Perfect scale Definitely. for something like that, right? Okay. Um, yeah. What about the uh, what about the Métis and the, uh, the in indigenous guys, Alex? Would you do them as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, you have to. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to. Uh, no. Do them right? Yeah. Yeah, put put the same amount of effort in and get them right, and I think oh. it would be I think it would be great. I think you'd you'd have to do that with a fair bit of sensitivity. Like you'd have to, um, you know, because there's I mean we we have to rightly so we have to tread so carefully around indigenous issues now in uh, you know in in Canada and for all sorts of you know excellent reasons. But so I think you'd have to do it respectfully and accurately. But you know that would be not that I'm telling you your business, but that would be a <laughs> that would be a fabulous co collaboration with um, Bob Merch and. Um, his what's what's his partner who's doing the flint and feather range oh lee lee, lee yeah lee. yeah 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 that would be a fascinating collaboration I think, I think tastefulness and and sort of awareness and and respect in in any of any time period you're doing is important like i've never been interested in in casualty figures or mm -hmm. um something one might deem distasteful as a portrayal of a, an enemy model or something like that. I, I just, I'm not, it's not what I want to produce. Um, right. Right. So I think, I think that would extend to whatever time period you're doing too. I think that's a great, sure. great thing to call out. Um, but it, it's, it's just not my, not my thing. Um, but I think, I think, you know, whatever you're doing, if you're, if there's sort of, as history is written, um, you know, you have to, you have to understand there's sort of a historiography that goes with it and you need to be mindful of today's today's context yeah yeah we had a really fascinating conversation with bob merch about um about that about you know mm. kind of reframing um indigenous history and and his flint and feather range and we were talking kind of openly about how interesting it would be to to do a um uh like a vikings in 
North America in like 1000 or 1100 or whenever very, it was. Right? Very cool. You know, it would be very cool. And it would, I think you could, you could do that in a way that would honor both sides really without, you know, but yeah, it's, I think one of the really interesting things about the time we're in, and I'm, I'm so pleased that there are people like you stepping up to, uh, to model is that, you know, we're seeing Canadian history in, in a whole new way with all sorts of subtleties, right? You know, when I was a kid, James, I don't know if you remember this, you're, you're, we're the same age, but do you remember that, uh, the National Dream series that the adaptation of Pierre Burton's books, yes, it was on, yes. it was on CBC in the seventies and they had a, they had a, a real rebellion, uh, episode, you know, where the troops were on the trains and they had to get off the trains. And then the, you know, the, the Métis and the Indians were just these shadowy guys in the bushes shooting at them. And it was all told from the Canadian point of view, the, the, or the settler point of view or whatever you want to call it. But um you know i i think we're we're willing to kind of revisit those stories so yeah it would be fascinating so there's a lot of i mean i'm i'm quite interested like i think gaming arterberg would be really cool too oh yeah yeah you know there's 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 some cool stuff out there um and and i think little known outside of canada yes yeah for or sure or at least you know little known within canada too <laughs> Fair. I, I think, you know, sort of, and, and somewhat understandably, so grouped as a British action outside of Canada, right? I think people just sort of see us as part of the British in these conflicts. Um, right. Cannon fodder. Well, didn't change in the 20th century. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it, I think there's some great subject matter out there that, that just, you know, if, yeah. if time and, and resources were endless, it would be so much fun to do it all well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, how about how about um, like three D printing? If I could, that be a way forward for you know to get some of these models produced less expensively. I, I you know it's something I'm exploring. Um, you know, my lab kit was was a three D model completely. Um, none of it was, was sort of your traditional master making or whatever, you know, I don't, I don't know the terminology mm -hmm. for a vehicle. Um, but, um, you know, you're starting to see so many of these various sculptors on, you know, like a Patreon or whatever the system is that are selling packages of sculpts every month. Right. And, and print at home, which is quite low cost as the, the buyer, um, you know, the material really isn't expensive the printers are incredibly affordable now i was amazed looking the other day um but i think the sculptor's still the this the sort of high cost right you want a good guy who's going to put his time in to make you the sculpt yeah now you're not paying for a mold and all these other things which is a, another very large expense with with metal metal miniatures but um you know you got to find the right sculptor mm -hmm. and they may still you know much like lawyers or 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 uh i don't know what else contractors i don't know the people you pay more for the better the service the better the quality yeah. um you know a good sculptor is not cheap because it takes time to do what they do and i can't do it therefore i have to pay to do it um yeah. so so i think 3d printing from proliferation perspective is fantastic um and <laughs> For a manufacturer, you know, that print on demand, whether it's sort of I print to ship or my customers print from a digital file means re uh, resource inventory 
is a whole different ball game, right? I'm not worrying about keeping bags of lead on hand. Yeah. Which has gotten very expensive, which has gotten very expensive and, and not a, uh, you know, a, um, ah, so you get me at work at seven o'clock at night. Wait, I got to pay up front for everything is what I was trying to say there. So, yes. so I've right. paid for the, the, the stuff doesn't mean it's going to sell. Um, so, so again, as a supplier or a vendor, it's, it's a challenging thing to sort of balance oof, how many more of this sort of niche subject matter am I going to sell as I go to do a new production work? Yeah. Um, and so printing could change that or has, is, I think, changing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy for us to, you know, for guys like us to tell guys like you, yeah, do the real rebellion. But it's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, like I, I was just sort of thinking today about, you know, my own, you know, if I won a million dollars, uh, passion project would be Canadian mounted rifles. That'd be very cool. War. And it's like, you know, and I sort of think it was like, God, I'm already up to a dozen sculpts. You know, to get like dismounted, mounted, command, yep. you know, Colt machine gun and crew. It's like, so a dozen sculpts, that's going to be like, what, $200 just to get them sculpt or $200 a figure. <laughs> Maybe more, more now. Let's, let's keep, let's keep. Like, adding. I'm not even talking, I'm just talking the, the, the masters, not even mold making or anything yet. Keep going. 400? <laughs> Five? Depend, depends who you use. How we can we can. So so I'm talking like six thousand, six to eight thousand dollars. It's 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 um for a small range. It's it's expensive. Yeah. Um, you know, and and you know some of the challenge too is there's there's some phenomenal I guess putty sculptors out there like traditional sculptors, but they're booked for three years. Hmm. Um, because they're, they're busy and they're busy for good reason. Um, so it's, it's an interesting, I think we're at an interesting nexus in, in sort of that side of the business where you've got this very rapidly burgeoning 3d sculpting and printing, uh, um, vertical or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then tons of these companies are still doing traditional miniatures and selling like hotcakes, but where, wh where's this all going to go? Right. What's I think 3d, excuse me, 3d sculpting. There's some great sculptors out there, but you know, by this and large, it, it hasn't caught up yet yeah. would be my, at least in sort of the war gaming. Like there's some, again, there's some companies are doing incredible stuff. That's been 3d for years. Uh, I think of the um, uh, crooked dice. And I, I think their stuff is all 3d sculpted and the masters are printed and, and it's beautiful. Um, and then there's some other stuff you see for sale online that, you know, maybe I wouldn't attach my brand to. Yeah. Uh, cause it's a different skill, but I think we're, I think we're entering sort of a new age and a new era that's, that's aided by technology. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. with every, every, um, um, Oh God, what's the word? Innovation. Innovation. Um, yeah, with any innovation or disruptive technology, that's the word, with any yeah. disruption, um, yeah, it takes years to yep. figure it out, to iron out all the, you know, all the, all the unintended consequences and all yep. the ripple effects. Yeah. I'll, I'll let it out the brain fart, James, don't worry. Thanks. Appreciate that. I, I think there are some, some companies and, and unfortunately they've, they've flown the coop tonight on me, but um, there are some companies that are doing print on demand and it's very high quality, very nice stuff. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's coming. Yeah. yeah. And I think For that'd sure. be the way to, to keep the, cause 
yeah of course the other worry with these with the you know 3d designers is you know if you sell your scl file then it's out there and it's yes. escaped and now you know is this guy going to then you know print millions of of copies and sell them you know and you're not getting a dime out of it and maybe he's putting it on a shitty printer with with bad resolution you know and then your name is it on your designs is looking really crap and it's like mm -hmm. oh my god you know mm -hmm. so we still got to figure that out too as a industry yeah yeah absolutely um, you know, I think I think it it you know it, it's something I've thought about because um, I, I don't have a 3D printer I don't know how to do it um, I can barely work my computer but um, <laughs> I agree <laughs> never mind like giving me resin and alcohol and all this stuff to try and figure that out uh, I will though I will um, we're 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 moving into a, a bigger house and I think uh, I may I may sort of dabble just at a, at a hobby level you know and mm -hmm. just see what I can see what I can do uh, but I think there's you know you could work totally out of 3d as a business maybe you don't sell your sort of intellectual property as it is like the the stls but i don't need to worry about having 50 copies of every pack i just need to have a couple of jugs of resin and maybe i know i'm maybe i'm selling two of this item every week so i have a bit of extra so i can ship quickly but otherwise i can print on demand yeah. and and then and i can have the printer going while i'm doing my job all day and yeah. and that stuff's ready in the evening to pack and ship. So I think I think there's something really cool about it. And I think from a logistics point of view, there, there's some some gain. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. yeah. And then and then when yeah, item X stops selling for whatever reason, stop you, just stop, you just start printing it. But it it you know we I'll, I'm jumping back in time here for us a little bit. But like I'm thinking. Like, what if I had a range where I had one torso and two sets of legs? So you can have a guy in shirt sleeves with trousers or shirt sleeves with shorts. Hey. And on a printer, that's not that hard. On a traditional putty mannequin, that's two molds, two sculpts, yeah. two, you know. So there's there's some 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 things about it that are very interesting to me. Yeah. And the customer has to, you know, fit it together and sure, but it's easy. It. It's all just digital art, right? Um yeah. I'm trying you, to think of a brand. You print them either way. And, and it's just a plug, right? Like a square a square peg with a square hole and they fit together perfectly. Or it's just yeah. two different files and how you print them. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that, that business model does exist. I remember um, listening to a podcast with a, I can't remember his last name. The guy, oh, Henry Turner. He does a, he had a Kickstarter called Europe Asunder where he was doing Napoleonic figures in um, uh, six mil, although you could scale them up. And it was exactly oh, that, yeah. exactly okay. that. You could choose the kind of headgear you could choose the kind of accoutrements yeah you had to have i think the um, the interface was uh, was blender but uh I'm, yeah i'm like you alex I, I keep wanting to dip a toe in that water but i'm not there yet i'm too much too chicken but i think it's super cool um, yeah but that was exactly henry's business model yeah yeah you you, you choose you, you go online you figure out what you want you put the uh, you design your own figure and then you just order so many you know order the file right you yeah. know, I, I think about it from even just doing Canadians in World War II, for example, like James could come, you know what, I want a bunch of guys in Balmorals or I want a bunch of guys in, and it's easy to take the same head you use for everything and slap a, a 3D Balmoral sculpt on it instead of having to fire up the putty, get that a copy of that head made, that sculpted, that back to the master, the master molds of that. And then, you know, it, it becomes because yeah. you're yeah. just copy and pasting. 
in, in a way, I mean, I'm oversimplifying it. I'm sorry, three sculptors out there, yep. but, uh, yeah. you know, imagine you could just have headgear and, and, um, uh, he's got a brilliant range Alan over at white dragon miniatures. He's got his, uh, courage and contact range mm-hmm. for modern Brits in Afghanistan. He's got a, you know, a complimentary Taliban range and something else coming soon. Um, but he sells them with like three different headgear options. And I think now he's moved, they come with everything, but at, at the time it was sort of choose this on checkout. Right. Right. Yeah. And 3d printing or 3d sculpting and printing made that easy for him. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I guess the other decision you have to make at that point is, do you just let the customer buy the STL files or do you, as you say, do you print, have the printer going, you know, we were at work during the day and you come back and pack and ship. I Bob Murch was, when he was talking to us, I think in our second episode, had some nervousness about uh, having his name attached to an SDL file that somebody might very inexpertly print, right? Mm-hmm. I would agree. Yeah, so. I think I think you if you sort of retain the business um, by, you know, your business revolves around providing hard copies, I guess you'd call it, of a file as opposed to, you know, the file that I could then just email to James and you after I bought it and now... You know the company I bought it from is out two sales. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's like you let a little too much control out there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you also do um, you, well pre-COVID. <laughs> everything is years BC, right before COVID. Exactly. Um, organized sword and brush. Yep, I'm I'm one one member of a team. We organize sword and brush. It's um, well, we haven't done it for two years now but uh the last one in 2019 was the fifth iteration of it good um sword and brush really started as an opportunity for painters to to sort of exhibit their painting whether it was you know larger scale display pieces or or war gaming you know whatever it may be um definitely or, or plastic models you know we just wanted people that are painting stuff to get it out on the table and and while it has a sort of competition element to it it's really about exposition um the idea is there's a a standard that you're scored against as opposed to competing against each other there's a system you're competing within if that makes sense so it, it no yeah. longer becomes you know i did better than james or or whatever it may be it's it's by this show's standard i'm this good or that good or you know right. and, and yeah. i think it's it's much more sort of encouraging yeah. So yeah, if you, you, you attain a score of 90 plus. It's a gold. You or a silver. Yeah, exactly. 20 exactly. people could win a gold. Exactly. Nobody could, nobody could win a gold. Exactly. The judges are real tough. Exactly. Um, yeah. But, but as we, we partnered with um, some friends of ours out in Oakville that run the, uh, the Lords of War game store and okay. they were running their own gaming events and, and, as you know, they've been very sort of hobby forward in their approach to everything as well. Very much encouraging painting and and exploring that that aspect of the hobby. We we put our heads together and, and merged our events. Um, I, I keep wanting to say two years ago, but I guess it's four now. Um, and and so the the fourth sword and brush was actually a joint event where okay. we we brought in gaming and the painting exhibition into one under one roof. Um, and it was good. Uh, it, it, our second year was fantastic. We had to double our venue space and and organize a lot more. Uh, we held it at the Holiday Inn in Burlington, just off Walker's. Okay, line, I want to yep. say. Yeah. Um, and and the idea is, I mean, we don't think whether you're painting display figures or wargaming figures or playing Warhammer or 
um, fistful of toes or whatever it may be. Like, I think it's all mutually inclusive. It's all the same hobby at the end of the day. And, and I think the more you can cross pollinate interests, the better and, and, and sort of the more solid the foundation of the community becomes, the more people sort of see what everyone else is doing and, and embrace each other's interests and, yeah, and passions. I think, I think, you know, there's, there's, I think there's a need to, especially in Canada. I mean, we're all so spread out and, and we're not a massive population when you think about the number of gamers and painters and, in, you know, even if we talk about central Ontario, you know, it's not that many people. And I think we, we need to kind of have a, have a reason to get together as often as possible and, and kind of share what everybody's doing and, and sort of embrace the hobby and enjoy people's interests and, yeah, and, and ex- get exposed to something new and cool. Um, what time of year do you hold it? Usually uh, it's the middle of September. Okay. Right. That's why I can never make it. Why can't yeah, I? It's usually the first teen weekend of September, if, yeah. you know, vende- cadets, venue permitting. Cadets is starting up and nonsense mm. like that. So I'll be retired next September. Just going to rub that in, James. Oh. No, we'll see you there. So, I'm getting, so I'm getting my f bomb out there. I'm getting I'm getting a horrible face from James, folks. Just be glad it's just audio. Yeah, <laughs> and a virtual finger. Yeah, I was I was gonna not a virtual one. It's a real one, Alex. I, I was gonna ask, but what, because I was looking at the website for this, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know anything about this. But it, it does okay. look like an interesting uh, interesting sort of crossover between the model soldier crowd like the the display soldier model soldier crowd and the um or what's the phrase the scale scale model crowd or and the wargaming crowd so yeah i think that's absolutely brilliant that you're trying to bring those two worlds together because there's really no i I don't think anybody really is totally siloed i mean i i have display figures in a little cabinet in the room where i'm sitting that i'll never game with but i just like to look at them right so yeah there's not many but a few there's yeah. a really, there's a really cool moment, um, and I find I, I feel like it's sort of more one way than the other. Um, but a lot of, I think there's a lot of people that play miniatures games that have no idea about this sort of. I don't want to say competitive because I don't like that term, um, but but this sort of painting exhibition side of of the hobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe they're not aware there's these bigger, cool figures they could just paint for the sake of painting. And you see them sort of walking through and going, oh, man, this is cool. Yeah. And and then vice versa, you have people that have painted that have never played a war game in their life. Right. And, and they walk through watching all these guys yelling and screaming, throwing, you know, whether we're talking about Space Marines or or uh, what did we have last time? Gaslands. We had um, um, Dracula's America was a really cool game. Less put on. And, 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 you know, people are walking through going, Oh, I didn't know this was there. And even gamers to gamers don't realize there's these other games out there because they play one thing or the other. And and I think to to like really truly create that like soup of of hobbyists, yeah. um, it's a great opportunity to just kind of see everything. Wow. Well, I I desperately hope that it's on um, next September. That'll be great. Yeah, that's the things plan. Are, are that is definitely good. the plan. Yeah. Yeah. The venue is booked. So Excellent. you know, pending any other hiccups let's, let's keep it let's keep it minimized pretending any burlington isn't that bad a drive for me no 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 shouldn't be 
And we'll put a link to it in the uh, pod notes, Alex. Uh, I, I would love that. Thank along, you very much. Along with links to your company, for sure. Speaking of gaming, I, I just want to ask you, yeah, when yeah. you're not working or, or running full battle rattle, or, what do you do? What do you do in the way of gaming? Like you mentioned earlier, are you, have you got a group or a club that you belong to? Yeah, yeah um, we're. I, I generally, <laughs> two years ago, um, generally gamed out of the uh, the Sword and Board down at kind of Bloor and Dufferin. So Toronto, okay. Toronto crowd, we're the Toronto Miniature Gamers, um, which is a, a, a very eclectic mix of all kinds of interests. I think would be the best way to put it. Um, so we, you know, we've got gamers from every time period, scale, type of game, um, which is really hard on the wallet. Really, really hard on the wallet. Um, <laughs> and I, I would be gaming a lot more than I am right now if I could. Um, yeah. But I like, I like a lot of different things, and I'm just looking at kind of my workbench as I'm set up here on the computer, and I've got uh, some of Knuckle Duster's Cowboys ready to go. Because I went horseback riding for the first time a couple of weeks ago, and now I basically think I'm Clint Eastwood. Uh, <laughs> so it's very, so cool. it's very cool, isn't it? Yeah, I loved it. It was incredible. Uh, but I dug out all those old Legends of the Old West books, and now I'm fired yeah. up and ready to play some cowboy games. Um, some great MDF terrain out there now. Ah, brilliant, brilliant. I love the. Uh, oh God, I don't want to get it wrong on a recorded podcast, Sarissa. Yes, is doing the like tent city stuff. It's just the yeah. fake, you know, kind of like straight out of Deadwood or Hell on Wheels or one of those, and it's brilliant. It's it's amazing. I really like that. Um, but it's yeah, I got some cowboys painting. I got um, some modern stuff from Spectre Miniatures on the go. Cool. Just, just getting ready to as soon as they open the doors properly, I'll, I'll have lots of stuff painted and ready to play. But infamy, infamy is another thing on my painting list. I'm working on some Romans for that. I love we our group loves the Lardies games. Big fan, big big fans of the Lardies. Okay, but not exclusively a modern gamer. Right, right. So is certain is certain board like in the back of a, a store? Uh, they are a game store. Um, okay. So they, they sell. Um, Games Workshop, Flames of War, and and sorry guys, I'm not plugging you very well, but uh, you know all your hobby supplies. Then their basement is the gaming area. Okay, yeah. so it's a, it's a traditional store. Tradi yep, very traditional store. Yeah, store. yeah, with with a bunch of gaming tables in the basement. I'm just looking at their website now. It looks amazing. Yeah. So it's on Blur West near Dufferin. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Just underneath, the, kind of underneath the Pizza Pizza when you turn around the corner there oh, to, on Brock. I, I keep trying to talk Elizabeth into a weekend. And I know where I'm going. Do it again. <laughs> Nice. I think you should. Yeah. Yeah. I think you should for sure. Oh. Huh. Um, all right. Speaking of uh, Lardy's, are any of you guys, uh, Alex, any of your, your, your friends going to uh, that thing in Hamilton on the 27th? Uh, we'll, we'll be there. Um, oh, cool. Bar, again, Good barring anything either. weird. I'm, I'm yeah. very excited. <laughs> very we'll, excited. Right? We'll, have to, we'll have to meet up in person. That would be great. Yeah, I can't wait. I think that would be fantastic. Um, I'm not yeah. quite sure what our plan is yet. Um, but we're we're there's three of us super excited i'm not sure who else might be coming but uh yeah but i can't wait so yeah that'll be awesome first time in almost two years at a gaming event so yeah absolutely extremely excited and, and great great games um great great company i'm i'm super pumped so what do you would you have any other thoughts here about wargaming in canada as a canadian wargamer yeah 
I think we've covered that a little bit, but we, yeah, I mean, yeah, really Canadian Wargamer, Alex, we, we sort of think, you know, it could be like a Wargamer who just happens to live in Canada, or it could be a Wargamer with a, a passion for, you know, things Canadian. It's, I'm, I'm guessing you're the latter. Mm. Nah, a little call me, a little call me. Call me, um, call me. Yeah, I'm probably at the end of the day a gamer who lives in Canada. I think I think at the end of the day I just um except you invested a lot of money building a producing a line of Canadian figures. I you know what every minute of it was worth it. I was thrilled with how that all came out and and I think a lot of people have been able to enjoy it and that makes me happy. Um so I'm okay with that. I didn't go broke. That's also a, That's a huge win in my book. Um, but I was ready to do I'm, it anyways. I'm very um, happy with the little fire team of them that I've got guarding thanks. the uh, the Afghanistan section of my bookshelf. <laughs> I love it. Um, I don't know. Thoughts on gaming in Canada. I think it's, you know, I think one of the big challenges, and, and I see it sort of at a micro level in game clubs I've been part of and a macro level from the internet and, you know, just exposure. I think one of the challenges, I think I alluded to it earlier, but our community is not that huge. Yeah. So I think we all, just like being in the UK or the US or anything else, we all have our varied interests. You know, James likes to game, I don't know, Polybian Romans, and you like five mil Civil War, whatever it may be. Um, but I think it can be hard to find enough people as spread out as we are and as small as we are that are into the same things you are. Yes. So I think yeah. there's a lot of like, okay, I'm going to play this. My buddies are going to get into it because I want to play it. And then I get into something because they want to play it. And, and it, it's, I think it's hard to focus, I guess would be where I think it's hard to really focus as a, as a large group that like you see these massive things that a whole club puts on in the US or the UK. And I think it's very challenging here to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Very. Which, which I don't know. I don't know what, the secret sauce is, but I'd love to find it because I, I see that stuff and I'm, I, I, I get so excited. Um, and I think it would be so much fun. Um, like a, a real event with this, everything's thematic and you've got all these, these people paddling in the same direction to make it happen. Uh, mm-hmm. which I think, I think would be just absolutely incredible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, and I think in your typical Canadian club, yeah, there's a lot of give and take. Yeah. You know, a lot of, which is Canadian, okay. A lot of very Canadian compromise. Yeah. And teamwork, you know, but but yeah, to put on a game, you kind of have to make both sides because you can't guarantee yeah. that, you know, and they're, they're going to play it because you put it on. Yeah. And then next week, you're going to play something that they put on. Yep. Yeah. You know, yeah. that yeah. they will have to paint both sides for. Yeah. Which makes so, sense. Yeah. So, one off projects like Keith Burnett's um, uh, Fenian Raids game, which you mentioned, or James, your own Afghanistan yeah. project. I mean, you, you built that from the ground up. Yeah. All by yourself. Yeah. yeah it's about two years of that's all I did. Very yeah. familiar with that, with that motion. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've got, you know, bins of terrain downstairs and everything that, that is all me. Cause I'm, yeah, that's my thing. I, I put that on for other people. That's, that's my yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think too, we don't have enough, like we don't have, like there's no game clubs in schools and stuff. I, or I mean, there are, I think maybe I'm just a little disconnected, um, yeah. but it's not like it was in the UK and like, we don't game in pubs and things like that. And I think mm-hmm. we're kind of a little bit of under our like moldy rocks in our basements a little, and I'd love yeah. to figure out how to. Yeah. I, I don't think, rock. yeah. We don't have a club culture in, no. in Canada. No, you're correct there. So I, I think I mean, there's an element Britain, of that. Yeah. I think in Britain, 
don't know. Maybe it's because they, yeah. they don't have nice, comfortable suburban homes. A lot of them, they they want to get out. <laughs> they want to get out of their little their little you know council terrace, and so go. Then they want to go to the club, whether it's a social club that's just basically an overglorified private bar, or to their you know whatever war game club, railway club, you know bird watchers club. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. Uh, who are they? They're the big club in the U.S. They do awesome stuff. YouTube videos, everything. What, what oh, are they called? HMGS, Historical Miniature Gaming Society. No. Are you thinking of the Little Wars TV guys? Yes. Yeah, those guys. Yeah, yeah. They have a clubhouse, and I'm so jealous. They do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they have a real clubhouse, and it's got stuff on the walls, and it's got a bar, and it's got everything. It's so cool. Yeah. Uh, I would love something like that but i mean where the hell do you do it because you can't do it yeah. in toronto for three grand a month and <laughs> no one in toronto is going to drive to stratford every friday night no oh, even no. even the rent here in stratford would be terrible yeah it, so it's, it's very challenging yeah we talked to uh um a chap from um burnaby the trumpeter war game group out in vancouver which rents okay. uh they rent a space i think it's a lion or kiwanis or lions club or I, I, sorry guys i can't remember um you know once a week and everybody pays dues to you know make that possible they don't have you know permanent storage or anything there but that's right and then there's uh the folks in ottawa seem pretty organized we're hoping to talk to them at some point soon todd creasy and folks okay i don't, I don't know them yeah but i think it's you know it's like it's very hit or miss right for sure and a lot of it is you know gaming in the back of a hobby store or in somebody's basement for sure yeah. yeah, very very reliant on on particular circumstances. You got a person who will pull it together and a space that you can use. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know it's going to be in his club. In they're doing club. great stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We were hoping to get Barnaby on in the new year. That'd be lovely. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to join my local legion just to get access to the legion hall to run a club. So, yeah, it's it's tough. Like it, uh, I don't know. And I, I'm not entirely sure how kind of gaming and pubs works in the UK. Like, I don't know if they have these big rooms off the back or something, but yeah. you look at the private room at a pub here and it's like, you're not going to fit a table in there. It's a tiny little space for the most part. Um, yeah. 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 Although we, we did run a pretty cool, like eight person DBA event in a bar in Toronto, which was kind of fun, but you know, it's a two foot square board. You can fit it. Uh, whereas it'd be challenging to put a big, you know, eight by six or something down. Yeah, you need you need a place that had like a, you know room they could rent it for wedding receptions. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. well, which gets expensive. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you got quite the club fees. So, yeah, no kidding. Well, I work for a church, and I can tell you, there's a lot of churches that have uh, halls that are chronically underused. So, um, if anybody was wanting to start one, I'd say just knock on the door of your local Anglican or United Church. Hmm. I'm sure if you even threw a tiny handful of money at them, they'd be all over you. But <laughs> it's, it's something we've thought about. There's the storage question that always comes up because, you know, a lot of people invested a, a, a lot of money or time in nice MDF terrain or scratch building their own stuff. And they want to make sure it's taken care of. Um, yeah. yeah. So the storage is the challenge because, I, you know, I think I don't know if it's a Toronto thing, but a lot of churches, they'll give you the space, but not a storage room. Like you can't no. leave, leave some bins there in a closet or something. Yeah, that's that's a taller order for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so you know, one of the attractions of being in a club that you can put on these big elaborate events, you have to be able to come in, set up, play, take down, 
before you have to get out at you know whenever the the, the caretaker is coming around at 10 right. o'clock to lock up yeah um, yeah yeah not sure i yeah. solved that one i'm sure there's a solution though yeah <laughs> somebody needs to buy a venue well how do, how do that and i keep I mean, looking at good. my i i keep looking at the 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 wing of the of the factory i work in and man if we could just clear all the machines out this would make a great wargaming venue you know yeah. there's like a paint we've got a room that could turn into a paint booth and everything yeah you could set in some you could set up some big 3d printers uh, for alex to run that'd be great oh God. That'd, be, that'd, be, that'd be incredible faster uh, laser laser to cut mdf yeah yeah now all we got to find is two millimeter mdf in canada that would be the holy grail Ooh, hmm. is that hard to find yeah apparently it's a uk thing oh huh. so i wonder if that's why because a couple I, a couple of canadian companies tried to start doing mdf and i know the one folded he's disappeared oh. yeah, what about those guys in brantford james those guys in brantford six squared or whoever they are they're doing nice stuff yeah they do yeah they're guys to watch we should have them on in the new year they're uh you're right i think kevin good. kevin out there runs an event too he'd be a good guy to to talk to okay cool well we've been going for about an hour and this has been hugely entertaining alex it's um we'll have to have you back for sure because uh, oh, my, my pleasure i enjoyed it thoroughly yeah so before we go um we have the custom what we call it the canadian wargamer podcast virtual library so i totally stole this from a guy called sean clark who runs a podcast <laughs> out of the states called or the sorry the uk called god's on scale um so uh, what two books would you like to deposit into the uh, into the virtual library you know, I'm glad I'm glad I knew this was coming because it would have been that much harder. But I'm still I'm still struggling. Uh, but I have to say, one for sure is Mark Zolke's Operation Husky. Nice. Good choice because Good it's choice. just brilliant. Yeah. And then, you know, I I thought about it for a while, but I think I'm gonna go with the Taliban Don't Wave. Ooh, I haven't. Which is which is Captain Semrau's memoir yes yeah um so it's it, it it's a good story i, I mean not a, not a great ending but a good story yeah yeah no that's really interesting and there's um yeah like it would be really fascinating to come back and and just do a, a um a whole conversation on the canadian experience in afghanistan because there were you know so many books that I think we're still waiting for the definitive book on canada and afghanistan to be written but there's a lot out there gonna take sure. 50, 50 years yeah there's a us one that's just up for pre-order on amazon to go one of the two um amazon to go yeah i can't remember where i saw it and early I'll, for their definitive history I'll, of the war i'll have to email you guys but apparently it's been getting some good reviews but that you know okay. remains to actually be seen I, I don't know if anyone's read it you know yeah. um it's already acclaimed before it's released, so I'm not sure. Uh, but but I mean, it will come. All these things, I'm sure, will come. But the most recent Canadian book, I think, is 2014. Yeah, yeah. 13 even, so it's not that... There's not enough hindsight yet. Yeah. At, at that. I think we're still waiting for the historians to come along who want to grab that subject uh, and run with it. There's a lot of great Canadian historiography being done military historiography a lot of it coming out of laurier but my sense is that the people who are doing uh most prolific people are are still doing world war ii stuff maybe some doing world war one but yeah 
I think I think Afghanistan is still still pretty raw in the Canadian experience. Like we're, you know, plus the fact that at the end of the day we didn't really win that, right? So it's <laughs> that makes it complicated. Wow. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah, certainly challenging thing to write a a, a definitive tome on. Um, but yeah. I, I would read it when they did. Yeah, for sure, for sure. All right. Really, yeah, this seems like a this seems like a really good point to wrap up, Alex. You've been uh, a gracious uh, guest, and thanks so much for your time. Wish you nothing but success with uh, wherever you go with Full Battle Rattle next. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. I look forward to coming back. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, here is the Canadian Content Corner. Hey folks, so this is the Canadian Content Corner for our November podcast. Uh, James, we're doing something different tonight. We have two uh, really, really cool guest stars. Uh, Brian Hall from uh, our uh, the Gaming Circle in uh, Chatham and an old friend of ours is with us. Hey, Brian. Hey there. And we're also, we're really, really pleased to have... Um, uh, Brad St. Brad, how do I pronounce your last name? Brad St. Croix? Yeah, that's correct. St. Croix. Uh, Brad is well known to uh, a lot of us as the genius behind uh, the On This Day in Canadian History YouTube channel and Twitter channel. Brad, thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Oh, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's uh, great to be doing something a little different, so I'm like, looking forward to this. Yeah, you're hanging around with the uh, the toy soldier nerds tonight. I hope that doesn't undermine your credibility curious Canadian military historian. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. <laughs> Um, the Canadian Content Corner is something that's evolved over um, the six podcasts that we've done so far, and it's kind of our attempt to shine a light on uh, some aspect of Canadian military history and how it relates to, potentially how it relates to, to miniatures gaming or war gaming. So uh, obviously the thing that we want to talk about tonight is the Battle of the Scheldt as envisioned through the recent movie, the Dutch movie, uh, The um, Forgotten Battle. And why is this important to us? I guess it's kind of important to us in part because it's not often that Canadians see our military history represented in cinema. Now, obviously, I can make an exception for Paul Gross's two movies, Passchendaele and uh, A Hyena Road, because those are movies that, first of all, they're not that bad. They're, I don't think they're that bad. No, and and that's we could go down a little rabbit hole about that. But I think, well, first of all, 1917. I will die on that hill. Okay, James is ready to die on that hill. Well, first of all, I think nobody really outside the Canadian scene knows them because they're 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 Canadian productions, and I think too a lot of war gamers get their knickers and knots about the historicity uh, at least of Passchendaele. But I mean, otherwise, if you if you put Paul Gross aside, Canadians we really get uh, extremely agitated and excited whenever a tiny piece of Canadian military history appears in some other country's movie, right? So, a case in point, the like the Canadian engineers are appear in the the Arnhem sequence of. Oh, oh, am I thinking of what am I thinking of? I think of 
Bridge Too Far or is it Band of Brothers for the Canadian? Uh, Band of Brothers. Yeah. I think it's both, but yes. Yeah. But that's like a little tiny vignette. But otherwise, I, I'd be hard-pressed to think of Canadian soldiers appearing in a World War II movie in the last, I don't know, what, 20 years? Really? Can anyone think of any? Uh, not off the top of my head, no. Okay. So, that sorry, what was that, James? Not any good ones, anyway. Not any good ones. So. <laughs> there might be some low-budget Canadian content zombie movie from the 1970s with Canadian soldiers in it. I don't know. Um, so... Battle of the Shell. Um, I, I have to confess that it's not something I know a lot about, even though my father was um, took part in the liberation of, of Holland. But to, to my knowledge, he was an armored car guy and didn't take part in the, the Shell fighting. So I have a really hazy sense of it. So I may be relying on some of some other guys, uh, some of the rest of you guys to help fill in. Let's talk about the movie for, first of all. I thought what we're going to do is we'll just sort of go around the, the horn once and ask, did it kind of fill in any blanks for you as far as the your understanding of the campaign or did it what what did the movie do that was useful to you or that you liked i'm going to start with you brian oh yeah okay um well i mean i i was very nice to see canadians in the movie like and in for the most part the appropriate kit i mean there's there's probably more mark three helmets than i than i would normally see but i, I mean that's rivet counting really um and sorry, the Mark III are the turtle helmets, the, the D-Day helmets? Yeah, so they, they only went to 3rd Division. Right. Um, and then after that, it was kind of a replace, as you know, so you'd see when you start to get into later, in the later fall photos, you start to see a mix, a lot of mixed up helmets. But, but the, I mean, the weapons were all accurate. Um, the vehicles were pretty good. So, yeah, it was, it was nice to see that part of it. I, I thought the plot was a little bit out of sorts, but anyway, we'll talk yeah. about that when we get to the bad stuff, I guess. <laughs> that might keep us busier. Um, yeah. Brad, what did you like about the film? Uh, yeah, just kind of going on with what, what Brian said. I, what I liked um, is like what, what Brian just said, the idea that Canadians are, are on screen in a way, uh, what, broadly, but for me, um, obviously my focus is Canadian military history as, as all the accounts and everything I run do. But what I also like to do is put the Canadian battle, what have you, event into the context of the wider things. And I think that's what this movie, <laughs> I want to say in a sense. I mean, there's obviously we can, again, talk more about the problems, but it brings a little bit of context to what's happening in the shelled. So I think that's a good thing. And also kind of an aside is, especially on social media, more made more people think about the shelled, which doesn't happen, period. So I think that's a big, big, big positive of the movie. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah, before you joined us, Brad, we were kind of talking about how that's kind of the, and I think you talked about that in your great interview with Mark Zolke, right? It's like, I think Brian was saying it's Normandy, Falaise, and then, you know, Market Garden maybe, and then it, suddenly it's the end of the war, right? And it's all tulips and roses, and uh, we forget about the liberation of the Channel Ports, and we forget about the Scheldt, largely, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. James, what did you like about it? Well, yeah, production values are very good. Uh, I did like how it... I, I sort of thought that maybe the forgotten battle they're talking about, which, you know, as Canadians, we're all thinking, oh, it's the Scheldt, Preskin's pocket, because they're forgotten. But as far as the Dutch are concerned, I think they were talking about the battle amongst themselves, right? You know, one of the main characters that we're following is this Dutch volunteer in the German army. And he's sent back from the Russian yeah. front. And, yeah. and then he's like, got all these horrible 
moral dilemmas and and stuff like that so you know i that was you know we just kind of think the dutch were all like just waiting to pop out the orange flags and and you know kick the kick the nazis but yeah there were a bunch working for them too yeah i i would i guess speaking for what i liked about the movie i, I would echo that in particular I, I thought i mean obviously it's important to remember that it's a dutch film right it's not a canadian film and it was i think pretty unsparing about the the experience of the german occupation uh so you know my wife and i we recently uh i introduced her to that great 80s british series allo allo right which is you know this sort of farcical look at occupied europe and the germans in in the film were not bumbling they were freaking scary right uh and you got the sense that um you know, to live under the German occupation would have been pretty harrowing. And and as James said, also there were a lot of a lot of young men in in occupied Europe. Not a lot, but I think you know a substantial number that were attracted towards fascism and the idea of you know resisting communism. And I think that probably maybe the filmmaker was trying to draw some echoes between that and the kind of the rise of the alt right uh, today, possibly. But so I, I this this kind of the segue to the what we maybe didn't like about the film was I had a question for you guys because you're smarter about this than I am about timelines. So, and, and I was watching it with my wife, Joy, who knows very, very little about military history. So she was saying, okay, so who are all these, who are all these guys uh, at the airfield getting ready to take off in planes? And I said, well, dear, I, I think those are British guys who are taking part in market garden, which as I understand it was the September. And then, the the lead British character who's the glider pilot, the sergeant, uh, they, they crash land in the Scheldt area, which is way off target, and then suddenly he he escapes and finds himself amongst the Canadians who are getting ready to attack the Walker and Causeway, which as I understand it happened sometime in November. Have I got that right? Uh well it starts uh again the movie does a I think a poor job with the timing, but uh anyway, it starts on uh, Halloween. So end of the month. Yeah, 31, 1, and 2 November. Yeah, it took three days. Yeah. Okay. And, there, and there's really two causeways, and that's part of the confusion, right? Because there's another one in Bevyland, and 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 that one wasn't all that pretty either. But yeah, you know, it doesn't really it doesn't really establish which one. Like, there's not a lot of effort to be historically accurate from a chronological point of view. Right. Like it was pretty clear that the British guys were taking off. For Market Garden, right? Yeah, That's they what were. I thought, yeah. Yes. Which, which is 17 to 25 September. Yeah. And the Shell campaign starts when? Somebody help me out. Like the, I know it's super complicated, but it starts. Do you want to count? Do you want to count the Breskin's pocket? Well, I'm I'm asking what what part of the campaign the movie depicts. Like I I oh. I, I assumed it was the Walker and Causeway action. It is. Yeah. That's, That's the what... action that they focus on in the. In the, I don't even know what the last half hour in yeah. Causeway. So yeah. yeah, it's Market Garden. I think it's got to be the first day. Market Garden is the goal. So it's almost six weeks out of sorts, right? Yeah. Right. Anyway, okay. So I'm I'm just, I'm just flagging my own confusion because I, I I came up pretty lame when I was trying to explain that to my wife. Like, well, I think they're two different battles, and they're getting confused. But anyway, uh, I know a lot of people have kind of teed off on this film on social media. <laughs> And it's easy to it's easy to do that. But Brian, what problems did you have with the film? Um, 
don't know, the plot seemed kind of disjointed. It almost seemed like they were trying to do a Dunkirkish uh, kind of jumping around and showing those almost implausible connections between some of the main characters. Um, that that pushed the envelope for me. It, it was okay, I think, in the first bit, but as you started getting farther towards the uh, end of the movie, it just the plausibility just went right out the window for me. So uh, that was probably my biggest bugaboo about it. Hmm. What, what do you mean by plausibility? What did you find Im- implausible? Well, you have you have the the meeting between the uh, the Dutch in German service and the the female uh, lead, I think you would say. Yeah. And, and, you know, later on in the movie, they run into one another again after he's been, uh, after he's been shot. Um, and then the, the airborne or the glider pilot keeps cropping up in places that, you know, it's just, you know, you're, first of all, he'd never change out his uniform for a, for a leg infantry unit. They wouldn't absorb him like that. That's not how it's done. Right. Right. Yeah. They that really they just sent him back to his own unit at that point. Yeah, uh, but that just, why, yeah, it's a, it just why, kept, it just kept going from there, and that and it you know right. became more and more implausible. Yeah, like why he wasn't see? Oh, you've just wandered through German, you know, the whole German rear area. Why isn't he sat down with an intelligence officer to be debriefed for five hours? <laughs> yeah, or more, and then sent yeah. back, to, and then sent back to his division because God knows they lost everybody in Arnhem. They need him to rebuild. Yeah. So, uh, James, we might as well just carry on with you. Is that is that your major critique of the film? The the glider pilot Bill bugged the crap out of me. Yeah. What is he doing there in that story? <laughs> that whole hour of him splashing around in the in in the polders didn't need to be there. It was stupid. <laughs> No, it was really stupid. It was bad script writing. Like we could have had, yeah, resistance girl or like, well, you know, girl who's getting drawn into the resistance and, you know, Dutch volunteer guy having second doubts. And then, yeah. And then the intelligence gets across to the Canadians and hooray, we cross the, we, we cross the estuary and, and outflank the, the blockade. Um, buddy, Splashing around in the polder for an hour was a waste of my time. I won't get that hour back. <laughs> like it was really bad. <laughs> I hated it. Tell us how you really feel, James. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Ashendale was a better movie. Oh, God. So, it, it was bad road. too. It was terrible. It was awful. Sorry, Ashendale's terrible. Oh, oh, okay. Well, it's it's there's a rabbit hole here calling us. Really telling the story of a battle. It was trying to tell. Unfortunately, all of Canada's experience in World War One, which is maybe too much for one movie, but yeah, portrayal of the Western, his portrayal of the Western Front was better than 1917. I'll tell you that. One would argue that that whole movie <laughs> could have been made into a miniseries and and followed, yeah. followed it. No, like in, instead of following the, the uh, you know, like one part is the resistance and one part is you know the Canadians in the Bruskin's pocket and one part is the taking of Walsher and that kind of idea. Yeah, and dramatize yeah. that. That would have worked fine. But you tried to mat. You tried to jam. You know, practically three months into an hour and forty to five minute movie. Yeah, following one glider pilot around. Yeah, it, yeah. You can't, you can't pull that off. Brad, what about you? What bugged you about the film? Uh, kind of the bigger picture things. The uh, 
the whole inclusion of Market Garden to me makes no sense. Um, not even just the, like just if you take it back and look at the bigger picture, right? With if you're going to call this a movie, because they do in the promotionals and everything, they do. They call it the Battle of the Shield. They don't talk about Market Garden, none of that. So why Market Garden? Like I understand, or I have my assumptions why Market Garden's in there. I mean, it's easy to market. <laughs> I didn't mean to <laughs> line that up that way, but uh, yeah. you know, if people are interested in Market Garden. It's always going to sell. Uh, it's super popular. No matter what time of year, no matter what you're doing, people like hearing about Market Garden. So I get why they might have put it in for there for that reason, but for contextual, it doesn't even need to be there because Market Garden has almost no impact on what's going on on the shelf. So to me, it just it's mm-hmm. they were cramming a storyline in there for possibly marketing reasons because that's what they wanted to do and just were not willing to change the script. I don't know, but that to me bugged me the most. And then then everything that sprouts off from that, right? The implausibility of a glider pilot, not even just the black watch but also joining the 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 scottish division the lowland division for the next attack for the 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 area like to outflank the causeway it just it just to these crazy decisions in script writing which if you just even take the military history part of it for five seconds makes no sense it's just poor writing like uh, james already said it just it doesn't make sense to me that's so so to me from the beginning it's it's got parts that are just nonsensical that's the big one for me. It's just this whole focus on Market Garden. And I mean, they deliberately show the map with that weird storyline about the glider pilot and his father, which they develop for five seconds and then move on from it. Yeah. Totally Market Garden. Yeah. Like it was just very odd that the, that, that was a focus at all. I just, I, I don't get it. They built storylines and then just discarded them five seconds later. It's, it's It was a very odd filmmaking choice to me. Well, that, that may say something about... Um how the film was made because I, I don't know if anybody else caught this but there's about 10 minutes of opening credits on the, when you're watching on netflix and you know they're all in dutch and they're helpfully uh then they're helpfully translated and there's like they spend a few minutes acknowledging all the various government agencies from holland and i think lithuania was one of them that funded it so it's like those old it's like those old and content films that they made in the 70s right which are basically tax write-offs so i kind of wonder if you know if it was that dynamic was going on so okay, again, Brad, explain to me where did the where did the Scottish come into it at the end? Because I, I I didn't I I missed that. I I was tracking the fact that uh, Bill the glider pilot is that his name? Yeah, uh, Bill, I think yeah. He meets the Canadians, then they say, hey, you know, join the Canadian Army. So you know, James makes a great point. Instead of saying, hey, you're Sixth Division, we should get you back to your divisional headquarters to regroup. And by the way, we should, we should interrogate you. Instead, they say, oh yeah, here's a, here's Canadian battle dress. Yeah. And yeah, here's a rifle. Good luck. Yeah. Here's a rifle. Yeah, and suddenly you're in the black watch, and nobody has a problem with that. Uh, so I thought that was kind of amusing. But but then so they there's the action where I think it's the Walker and Causeway, right, where the they attack and then it's repulsed, and then yeah. which is I think yeah. that Mark in your podcast that's what Mark was talking about, right? Mark Zilke and that the famous uh, the famous uh, drawing that he was talking about. Yeah. So. Sorry, I'll just answer the first one. So, so the, the the 52nd uh, Lowland uh, Division uh, was included in the First Canadian Army, uh, which is on the left flank of the Allied advance. So that's where they come in here. Uh, again, interesting filmmaking choices, literally having a guy with a thick Scottish accent at the one, apparently, orders group they're having <laughs> is interesting choice to kind of highlight, hey, there's Scots here for minutes, and that even though the glider pilot is the only one they really focus on in that attack. So, so yeah. that's really interesting. And in a sense, again, I don't know, just to get the Scottish inclusion. I don't know. 
Uh, but also, yeah, moving to the causeway, uh, they don't really even show how that develops in a way. They don't, sorry, another thing coming back to me that bothered me was the use of artillery. They show what, one or two shells firing from a 25 pounder. Yeah, what is that? That is weird. Um, yeah. I just thought about that. It was really bothering me and yeah. I really thought about it out loud. So, so anyway, so, so the black attack failed. Um, and then you mentioned the, the stream I did with Mark, Mark Zilke, that those photos are from the Calgary Highlanders attack that's repulsed. Uh, and then it's the Maisonev that they're successful in crossing and establishing basically to the nail a beachhead or sorry, a, a bridgehead on the island. And then they're relieved uh, from the Scottish division. And then they continue the fight uh, in, into Walker Island. So right. uh, and it comes together. Literally, that's not talked about. So it's just a whole confusing, literally in the dark mess. Yeah. And then it's finished off when they land the Royal Marines, right? Yeah. And then, then yeah, that's what does it. It's now flank and landing in the, yeah, in West Capel and uh, flushing uh, on the other right. side. Right. Hmm. I don't know if the movie makes assumptions about how ignorant the audience is or, I mean, we clearly see things that are, that are wrong uh, in the movie. And perhaps most of the, most of the people yeah. who watch it will not have any idea of what's wrong with that. And so. Yeah. And I think maybe that's so, just, that's just something about how, go, go ahead, James. I think they, I, they, Blame the flooding on the Germans when actually it was the RAF breaching the sea dike on Walter. Right, they went, right. They went to the king of they went to the king of Holland and said, "Can we sink your island?" Yeah, that, and but that's he not said, "Yep, okay." And they they blew a massive hole in the dike, and the sea came in and flooded the island. And then yeah, and then uh, the commando brigade did their they used that breach as part as part of their their uh, landing area yeah. for the assault. That's not the case in the Breskins Park. Yeah. Not the case in other no. parts of Bevy Land. And no. but I mean those are those are flooded right. by Germans, but it's easier well, we to blame in the, the Breskins Germans than it is to acknowledge that the RF yeah. bombed the hole in, yeah. in the dike and they swam buffaloes through there. Yeah. Uh, I was hoping we'd see a buffalo in the film, but I know. And, yeah, me too. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so cool. It's like, oh, yeah. man. <laughs> and, and Brad, in your talk with Mark uh, Zolke, he made the point that uh, a lot of Dutch civilians died because of that, right? It was uh, yeah, oh yeah, the, the the flooding. Well, just if you want to, yeah, Walker Island is just skips that part. I mean, the whole debate about that and what led to that, and there's the whole element. If you're talking about you know First Canadian Army guy Simmons, the element of him wanting there's resistance against that, um, him eventually getting support to do it, and then yeah. A lot of Dutch civilians. That's where most of the civilians in Wilken are killed, is by the RAF bombing and flooding. Uh, and yeah. I think it's important to note, uh, again, just outside the movie, is what that actually does. It does next to nothing to help the attack. Commandos that land yeah. still have to take those gun batteries. A few are taken out, but it hardly does anything. So, again, again I'm not saying, you know, I'm not, you know, armchair generaling here, but it's just something to think about in terms of what that means on the ground. Yeah, the other part of that that always occurs to me, and that's probably because of my own experience in, in Simic after after being in the infantry, is that the aftermath of cleaning that up, um, that didn't happen overnight, right? Uh, you, all of that ground is now salt, uh, uh, salted, and that and it need it took years and years and years to make that even viable for agriculture after the fact. It's one of those things about that conflict that most that most people don't even think about. So, 
Mm -hmm. And I think it was one of the speakers in one of the Laurier um, Maple Leaf Root seminars earlier this fall talked about how, you know, there are parts of the Dutch memory today that are not especially friendly to Canada because we were we were kind of messy in the liberation. It wasn't always just armor cars rolling through towns getting yeah. tulips and pretty girls uh, thrown at them, but it was... It was messy, and then afterwards, uh, the Canadians weren't always uh, very gracious, or, or it wasn't, you know, the civil occupation and transition to civilian power in Holland was pretty messy sometimes, right? Yeah, so they weren't on their, that's just their best behavior in that part of, uh, at the end of the conflict, they, a lot of them, things they shouldn't have been doing in a, in a friendly country, and that's uh, another part we don't talk to too much about. So perhaps we should. Well, a lot of bored soldiers waiting to go home, right? They got in yeah, trouble, exactly. right? And I guess, Brian, I mean... In, Brian's point of view, Brian's question was, or point was a really good one about how, you know, can the, does the movie assume any kind of baseline knowledge uh, from its audience? And I, I'm not sure it does, but I'm not sure that's even possible today because of the way war movies are made, right? War movies tend to be really episodic, really granular by focusing on one or two people rather than, like, when you think of the movies that, Brad, you're a bit young to remember Battle of Britain or market garden debuting in cinemas but the other the three of us are old enough to remember going to see those films as kids yeah and you could still you could still make a two or three hour war movie that that told a grand right. narrative right yeah. i don't i don't think that's i don't think films are capable of that anymore or, or that they have any interest in that i was going to say something about the map the whole the whole thing about the map that the dutch resistance girl um <laughs> smuggles out of the library you know that was exciting from a you know a, a kind of a spy versus spy kind of thing it was a lot of suspense but would she get caught by the horrible nazis but i kind of thought didn't the allies have enough people who would were familiar with geography and intelligence and geography officers that they would understand how the the tides worked yes i mean the short answer is, is yes they understood especially that, yeah that whole storyline of the boat and again spoilers for the movie she gets shot and then she just pushes her out and somehow she still ends up where she needs to go with that's so important they knew the whole time of what they were dealing with they knew what they had before they knew what was going on with the conditions they're the ones who again died and flooded half the island they understood yeah richard ramsey is a big part of all of this Understand they sorry they understand these things so again I get I can see why you want to get it's a Dutch movie get the Dutch presence in there I get why they could have done it in an entirely different way but they chose this one particular to really connect these stories together again but it's just they it just does a disservice to understanding how the battle develops and yeah well and there's no shortage there's no shortage of aerial photography going on at this point yeah. either right I mean the Allied Air Forces are dominating the air and yep. they're able to take aerial photos of anything they want uh so they they know they knew exactly what was going on especially in places like Walchard island where there's barely a tree to hide under yeah right I mean, yeah that's, that's always uh, tempting in cinema though to have a plucky girl uh save the day with her with her heroism right i mean that there's a lot of sort of contemporary agendas that that ties into so that was that was a good half hour on on a, a fairly minor film that probably few people outside outside Canada are going to pay much interest to gents thanks very much um, here's a here's a final question for each of you so we talked about a film that we that we would have liked to have seen do more for Canadian military history so here's a question for you Steven Spielberg comes to you and says Brian Brad James I want you to tell me what Canadian film I should bankroll 
let's just say let's just say World War Two for the sake of argument. What would what story would you tell them to to uh, to do properly? Mm-hmm. Brian, start with you. Uh, I'd back up a little bit and go back to fillets and specifically look at the South Albertas and and the ash cans going into St. Lambert. Mm. Uh, that whole drive to to close the pocket that that and then you could zero down on a couple of characters yeah I'd be unfortunately there's no love it. interest there so that would probably be not work but uh well, gross wouldn't direct it <laughs> that's what that's what fury could have been is what i always say that's yeah what, but it wasn't obviously mm. okay flace pocket from uh, brian james well let's see there's a couple of good ones because i would like to go earlier and do the actual Breskin's pocket. Yeah, um, and then it could be soldiers splashing around in the water. Yeah. Right? Because that was just nasty, muddy fighting. Um, but also, you know, maybe maybe um, filming Farley Mowat's and No Birds Sang. Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah, that's the one I'd go with. Make a movie of a No Birds Sang. Mm-hmm. Nobody, nobody remembers anything about, about the shell, but now you're talking about going to Italy. Yeah. Well, what are you talking about? <laughs> we already have a good book to start with, so we can get a script easier. In oh, for sure. Yeah. Unless Peter Jackson messes it up. <laughs> add, add rabbits pulling sleighs or something. He would have false Mary Eager on mooses, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Brad, what about you? Uh, yeah, I'm going to go completely different direction here. Uh, I would go with Ortona. Um, Ooh. It's... Uh, it's understood, I would say, in Canada, outside Canada, not really. If you're going movie, you can't beat that. <laughs> like it's called Little Stalingrad for a reason. I mean, it's 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 got yeah. all kinds of storylines, everything. It just it brings home the Canadian war effort just generally. I mean, as the historian, I can't not think about these things yeah. and what Ortona means to, to all of this and what's going on to me. It's just and again, it would be an amazing story. And you've got everything you could want. You've got tanks. You've got infantry battles. You got hand to hand. You got civilians. You can throw anything and everything in there, and it would be accurate. Yeah, yeah. It'd be an amazing story to be told. That's good. I like that one. Can you can you imagine what a great Christmas scene that would be? The uh, the, the famous RCR Christmas dinner. Oh yeah, that would yeah. be an amazing. With the Ortona punch, yeah, that'd be awesome. Oh. Yeah, that would that would be an amazing scene. That would yeah. be a, that would be a tearjerker moment for sure. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, I'd want I'd want somebody to play Rusty Wilkes, the RCR Padre, just because that's me. But yeah. Well, I, I'm going to go in some of a different direction. I, I would I would uh, want to, a movie, like a two-part movie that followed a, a Canadian battalion. It could be a fictitious battalion, like the first half of the film Training in England. What, what was that all about? Uh, and it would maybe capture some of the experiences of Canadian soldiers in England. Like, you know, my dad picked up a, an English bride and my three older siblings <laughs> before the war over uh and then maybe followed them through um a couple of the normandy battles uh or through holland or something like that i think that would be that would be interesting but that might even be like a band of brothers miniseries i don't know anyway so uh steven spielberg if you're listening to this uh, you've got uh, all, all sorts of ideas uh for the canadian military experience gentlemen thank you this has been great thanks for fleshing out the canadian content corner tonight Done. brad we're uh, we're hoping to have you back as a guest uh in uh, for our december podcast to talk about hong kong yeah, well, yeah, looking forward to it. It should be, uh, should be a good one. Yeah, and we're going to put you on the spot and ask you if you've ever played with toy soldiers. So, um, 
And Brian, we're we're uh, really really love to have you uh, with us tonight. And we're James and I would love to get you and Keith on and talk about uh, stuff going on in Chatham. And also, you're you are the six millimeter guru in the Canadian wargaming scene. I think so. Mm. That's, well, Glenn Pierce know. might argue that. that. Glenn Pierce might argue that. <laughs> that could be like an epic matchup, gentlemen. Thanks very much. That was, this, this was great. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we've reached the end of the episode seven of the Canadian Wargamer podcast. Thanks so much for listening. It was really great to get to know Alex from Full Battle Rattle Miniatures, and we look forward to watching him. He's, I think, going to be a rising star in the Canadian Wargaming community. Thanks to Brian and Brad for joining James and I to talk about the Forgotten Battle. If you haven't seen that Netflix film yet, well, we hope we haven't spoiled it for you. We'd love to hear what you thought about the film. And we'd be super interested um, in uh, if there's an episode from Canadian military history that you'd like to see on the screen. Uh, why don't you leave a comment and tell us about it? James and I will be back in December for episode eight of the podcast. Uh, Brad St. Croix will join us again to talk about his research on the Battle of Hong Kong, the Christmas Battle, perhaps the forgotten Canadian Battle of World War II. We'll also talk about Brad's uh, burgeoning social media projects. He's a young historian, also should be on everybody's watch list. We are also planning on having a bit of a Christmas party, so we're going to invite uh, some Canadian war gamers from our circle to join us for a few brews, puppers, of course, and to talk about what we want in our Christmas stockings and who's been naughty and nice, so watch for that. Now to play us out, following our custom of a choice of music from Canada's military tradition and to honor our guest Alex, a natural choice is the quick march of his former uh, unit of service in the Canadian Army, the Royal Regiment of Canada. Founded in 1866 as the 10th Royal Regiment of Toronto Volunteers, the RRC's battle honours uh, include the Fenian Raids, 2nd Eeps and the 100 uh, Days, Dieppe, the Scheldt, which is pretty relevant, and Afghanistan. And because it evolved from the British Grenadier Guards, you may recognize the first part of the Quick March. <laughs> Thanks for listening.